Well, yeah, we get to participate in something quite special this morning to gather together as the Lord's people on His day. And uh, I find no greater joy than to be here with all of you. My family, uh, the rest of us aren't here. Chicken pox is around and we are happy to share that around if you like. I know of one family that is happy for us to give it to their little ones. It's better to get it now uh, than when you're older. Um, so yeah, take us up on that if you'd like. But um, yeah, we gather once again around the Word of God and, and what a true joy uh, that is this morning to do that. We've sung in to God in praise. Uh, we have spoken to God in prayer. And now we all will, both you and I, as we sit under the preaching of His Word, hear from God. For that is all that true preaching is. Taking the text of Scripture, explaining it, exhorting from it, and applying it to our lives. And as has been well said throughout church history, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so let's hear from God now. If you're following along with us as our journey, we're finding our way now, our place now in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31 will be our focus this morning. And if you're visiting with us, that's what we're doing, working our way through this precious, uh, marvelous and truly uh, incredible gospel. So follow along with me, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through to 31. As he, that's Jesus, was sitting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the first last. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this privilege to be here on this day. Lord, may we have a great neediness about us. 
May we have really a desperation and a hunger to know what you want to say to us in this day, in this moment, in this hour. Would you guide us and lead us by the power of your spirit? We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you taken the test? So read the, word, the words on the uh, gospel tract. It comes with a warning too. It says, you are about to embark on a truth experience. If you could, it could alter your view of yourself and your view of eternity. Have you taken the test? The first question on the test is, do you think you are a good person? <laughs> now, if you go out onto the street or ask people that question, I can tell you from over 11 years of experience on the street in street evangelism that most, really most, the vast, vast majority answer that question with a resounding yes. I'm a good person. This test then continues on with directness and candor with some follow-up questions in rapid-fire form. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever looked at another person with lust? Have you ever been angry with someone? After, with some, an admission of guilt, upon taking this test, some, not all though, acknowledge that yes, they have indeed broken God's law and as a result they stand guilty in His sight and so the test goes on, the gospel tract goes on and so too does the gospel encounter that you're in and you share Christ with them, you call them to put their faith in Him, to turn away from their sin and Lord willing they do, that's your prayer, that's your earnest desire and that's the good person test. Many of you, I'm sure, have seen it, used it, and if not, it's a great little evangelistic tool. And what makes it, the good person test, and any method of gospel proclamation just like it so effective, at least effective in actually getting the person to see that by God's standard, they're most certainly not good, what makes it so effective is due to the fact that the law of God is brought to bear down upon the conscience. Speaking for a quick moment about the conscience, we all have consciences. They're, they're given to us by God. And the one thing about your conscience is, as has been well said, it either accuses you or excuses you. And so to have a properly proper functioning conscience that is accusing you when you do wrong and that isn't hardened and always just excusing you, you need to have and we need to have our consciences informed by the Word of God and not the opinions of man. So any evangelistic effort we make reaching the lost, and there is lost people inside the church as well as outside the church, needs to be one where we show the person their sin against God and their desperate need for salvation. And when it comes to salvation and those who possess saving faith, there are really only two types of people in this world, the saints and the ain'ts, the haves and the have-nots, the lost and the found, that's it. And what we see in our passage this morning is a person who came so very close 
to salvation. A person who was almost converted. But he did not find, no matter how close he came, he did not find the peace and the joy and the forgiveness that only comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a very important passage as we reach our way in the narrative. It's really an account of an almost Christian. One who heard the call from Jesus, follow me, but didn't. And it cost him everything because he was not willing to let go of anything. As we walk through this passage, I want to give you four headings right up front for you to hang your thoughts upon. Number one, we'll see first a sincerity in verse 17. We'll see next, number two, a summons in verses 18 through 21. We'll see next a sorrow in verse 22. And then last, we'll see a schooling in verses 23 to 31. And so we have a bit to get through and let's jump right in. Number one, I want you to see first in verse 17, a sincerity. Look at verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? First, let me say how great it is to be able to have different accounts, different gospel accounts that all bring something often unique to the table that helps us get the fullest picture of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in this gospel narrative. Mark tells us that this was a man. Matthew tells us that this was a young man. And then Luke tells us that this was a ruler. Hence, the, term, the common reference to this passage, I'm sure the heading of your portion there in your Bible, is that this is the account of the rich, young ruler. He was wealthy, he was young, he was a ruler. A ruler of what? He was a ruler of a synagogue. And so, he was a man who had much influence, he was in the highest echelon of society and how contrasting this is to the previous portion from last Sunday about simple little children who possess nothing. Here's a man who possessed everything. And remarkably, he was young and he possessed all those things. So beginning of verse 17, Jesus there is setting out on a journey, it says, the journey to Jerusalem, you know, where he, the innocent one, will be unjustly tried and sentenced to death and die an atoning death for sin. He's the suffering servant. We love him. We worship him. And here we see this rich young ruler, a man influenced and engaged in the religious activity of the day, no doubt from a child, similar to those who've grown up in a Christian home or have gone to Christian schools. He's grown up in that world. He, he comes and runs up to Jesus, I believe, with full sincerity. He's completely sincere. I mean, look at verse 17. He runs to the right place, the feet of Jesus. He assembles the right posture. He, in, in humility, he's kneeling before Jesus and he recognizes the right thing. He calls Jesus the good teacher. And he asks the right question. What must I do to be saved? That is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so this 
wealthy young man comes in full sincerity. He's very sincere. He's showing full concern for his spiritual well-being. And oh how he stands in utter contrast to the people of the day that we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark, who cared very little at all about their eternal destination. To a Jew, the concept of inheritance here, that is, the word there means to possess to them, to come in possession of eternal life now. And in his zeal, though certainly sincere, this young man does by taking into consideration of the, the, the full scope of the narrative, he is displaying a rash and hasty type of assumption that whatever the answer was to inheriting eternal life, he was able to fulfill those requirements. So he's completely sincere, but he's completely rash and completely hasty, making the assumption that he can fulfill whatever is required of him. But yet what becomes evident is that this man is blind to what is going on in his heart. For as we'll see as we go on in just a moment, he is ignorant and idolatrous. He has treasure in his heart that will hinder him both in this life and in the life to come. He thinks that to possess and come into the inheritance of eternal life, he simply must do a good work. What would you do if someone came running up to you and said, I heard that you're out here sharing the message of the gospel and then just said to you, well, what must I do to be saved? It's an ideal circumstance, right? An ideal encounter, unlikely to ever happen much, but it will, what will happen is that often whether in your own family or in your workplace or among your friends or among those you know, a person will be sitting or standing before you who is in need of Jesus Christ. And how you walk through that encounter is absolutely important. How you, in the midst of that encounter, walk through your gospel presentation is crucial. And Jesus offers us some wisdom here in how to engage with the unsaved. And we see that in our second heading I have for you. I want you to see next in verses 18 through 21, a summons. Jesus said to him after he's asked the question, why do you call me good? Here's Jesus' own good person test for the young man. And then at the end, there's a summons to follow him. Note that Jesus doesn't come right out and answer the young ruler's question. I like how James Edward puts it, quote, Jesus senses the question of the man's lips is not the question of the man's heart, end quote. Instead, Jesus deals immediately with the concept of good. You need to understand that in Judaism, only God was considered good. So the rich young ruler, is he affirming Jesus' deity here? Saying that Jesus is God? No, I don't believe he's doing that. I believe that Jesus is in a veiled way doing that. But what he's doing here 
What Jesus is doing here is picking up on the man's usage of the word good. And, and I want you to know that Jesus is not doing some kind of nitpicking of his semantics. But Jesus is doing this to set the stage for the encounter by highlighting the fact that man is inherently not good. You see, there was a sad irony that was playing out in the life of every Jew, including this rich young ruler back then and still today. You see that in Judaism, they boldly proclaim that only God is good. We would say yes and amen to that. And yet in Judaism and every works-based religion in the world, which is every other religion in the world, in Judaism, their entire religious system is built upon being good enough to be right with God. So they say God is good alone, but they can't connect the dots that their religious system teaches that they have to become good enough to be right with God. It's a glaring fallacy. But for this rich young ruler and Judaism of the day and still today, this is a fact that the blinding light of self-righteousness simply cannot see. You see, this young man was making the benchmark for being right with God as something based upon his own standard, man's standard. And that is why when you ask people, most people, if they believe they're a good person, they all say yes. They literally do. So Jesus picks up on the man's faulty view of good and then moves to his own good person test. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments, he says to him. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So here in rapid fire form are five of the ten commandments plus one interesting phrase we'll touch on later. And these are all from the second part of the Ten Commandments. They all deal with a person's relationship to another person. The first four all deal with one's relationship to God. And so Jesus takes these and he unloads them upon the conscience of this young man. I mean, think of the scene for a moment. The twelve... They had just prevented the children, you recall from last week, that they found so annoying from coming to Jesus. They were rebuked by Jesus for doing that hindering. But now a person from society with such an incredibly high standing has ran up and asked about what he must do to be saved. And instead of Jesus giving the man a motivational speech or leading him through a sinner's prayer... Like, repeat after me. Do you know you're a sinner? Yes. Do you want to go to heaven? Yes. Well, welcome to the family of God. I'll boast of another convert on my belt. Jesus isn't doing any of that. Jesus isn't even telling the guy, trust in me, turn away from your sin and and, and turn to me and follow me. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus does none of those things. Instead, he rattles out the law of God. That pertains to man's relationship to one another. And the twelve must have been thinking that Jesus is completely blowing it big time. I mean, what are you doing? 
he would have, they would have thought. Here's the ideal encounter. And you're saying all the most unideal things. But here is an evangelistic template from Jesus that many so-called Christians and preachers and evangelists simply don't understand. Or they do understand it, but they don't want to engage in it. For fear of man and the like. Here's the evangelistic template that Jesus gives here. You cannot understand the good news until you fully grasp the bad news. Until the unbeliever understands their dire predicament, their dire standing before God as a result of their sin and their desperate need for a Savior, there is nothing. And so here is Jesus involved in the most ideal evangelistic encounter. And even though the man goes away unconverted, Jesus is successful. He's successful. Do you understand that? And the, re the reason Jesus is successful in his evangelism here, as I want you to understand this, is the aim is not for people to make decisions for Jesus Christ. It's not. Oh, how many people will be in hell for eternity having made a decision for Jesus Christ? Because they simply make a decision for Jesus Christ. They never live as though they ever, ever made one because they were never converted in the first place because they knew not of the grace of God. They knew not of their tremendous sin but they simply tacked on Jesus like a necessary accessory to their life. The reason Jesus is successful here was because all successful evangelism is where a sinner is shown his sin and then having just seen his sin, he is called out about how desperately sick he is and his need for Jesus. He then flees to the one who Jesus said earlier in Mark of himself, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so that's why Jesus is successful here. All evangelism has as its aim to show the sinner his sin and his need for the Savior. Not to just tell him the good news. And so Jesus is doing what we all must do here. We must make it our aim that when sharing the gospel to ensure that before we present this pearl of great price, we strive to show the person that they have sinned against a holy God. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus uses the law of God here. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7 verse 7, I had not known sin but by the law. The law of God silences the mouth, pricks the conscience, acts as a mirror for the sinner to see his or her sin. So that's what Jesus does here. And regardless of whether or not the person walks or regardless of whether or not the person stays and talks, successful evangelism is when the sinner is made to see his sin in the light 
of a holy God and not just thrown some cheap Christ and some easy believism. So much can be said on that point alone, but let's move on. Look at the response now of the rich young ruler in verse 20. And he said, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Staggering, but not surprising. The man asks what is required of him. And what he is given by Jesus is something he believes that he's already doing and has always done. And what you see here is an outworking of all man-made religion and every system that it has. It's all external. It's all external with little to no regard for the internal. For this young man, there was zero sense of having any spiritual bankruptcy. Why? Because everything he had ever been taught and everything he had ever done was focused on achieving moral goodness that equals to right standing before God by what he'd done. He says, I haven't broken any of them, but I tell you, he certainly broke each of them. Everyone has. There is not one who is good. All have sinned, Romans 3. He's been angry. That's murder. (laughs) He's looked with lust. That's adultery. He perhaps stole. He certainly lied. I am sure at some point along the way he dishonored his mother or father. But because of the religiosity and this Pharisee-like pride, he simply could not see it. Because in his mind was this works-based religion. And as Christians, we get that. As Christians, we understand that. It's what makes our faith different, and it's what makes our faith true. It's what makes every other faith the same, and every other faith false. All other religions, including the Judaism of this young man, are works-based, and the basis of a right standing before God is, is anchored upon an outward, exemplary existence. That's why he could answer as he did, which is quite staggering, but not surprising, when he says, I've kept all these from my youth. He truly believed he was blameless before the law. That Jesus had just laid bare upon him. He was literally putting his confidence in his eternal destination upon his flesh. That is what he had done. He sounds incredibly similar to someone else we know, doesn't he? Philippians 3 and the Apostle Paul. Listen, it says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. Now listen to this. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. That's what he said. So you have to feel for this young guy, really. He is, while still responsible for his actions and his heart attitude. He is 
the byproduct, the result of a false religiosity that was around him everywhere. And everyone in his life and in his sphere was involved in this man-made religion and extra biblical traditions that taught as biblical truth that you can be right with God by being morally excellent and good and faultless to the law. We've seen that time and time again from the Pharisees and the scribes. So he came with sincerity. It is blind to the fact that God wants his heart, not his externals, not his actions. God wants his heart. And now we see Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. Verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What is the one thing that he lacked? Matthew tells us that he even asked the question, What am I still lacking? What's the one thing that Jesus is referring to when he says one thing you lack? Well, first, I want you to tell you that Jesus is not talking about the act of selling everything and giving to the poor as the one thing that this man is lacking. He's not. Nor is he doing so to show the man that that's how he is to be saved either by going and selling everything. By saying, go, sell, and give everything to the poor, Jesus was exposing the man's greatest disorder. A love of money and worldly esteem. Jesus is showing him that his greatest devotion was to his treasure. And his treasure was his idol. And his idol was his wealth and his comfort and his earthly esteem. What Jesus is saying when he says there is one thing you lack. Jesus is referring to the remedy to this man's greatest disorder, his greatest disease. You see, the one thing this man lacked was the one thing that would give him the answer to the question that he so sincerely asked of Jesus at the start. What this one man lacked was love for God. That's the one thing. What's the greatest of all the commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you young man identify the idol you have made in your heart and deal honestly with it, what you treasure, I will replace that idolatrous treasure in your heart that currently has all your affections, that is hindering you from eternal life, and I will replace that with a greater treasure, the riches of eternal life and peace with God. That's what he says. And you will have treasure, Jesus says. And here's the summons now. Come and follow me. Jesus is saying, 
anyone who comes to me. I will not cast out. Anyone who drinks of me will never thirst. Anyone who eats of me will never hunger. For I satisfy the weariest soul. And if you, he says, young man, and to anyone here who is unconverted this morning, if you identify the idol of your heart, and to the young man, he says, if you carry out that commandment that I'm using to expose your, where your treasure is, go and sell and give. And whatever yours is, this young man would have given Jesus and the watching world enough evidence to see that he had dealt with his heart, identified what he was truly treasuring, which would never satisfy him. And he would have ran to Jesus, the savior of his soul. There would have been rejoicing in heaven. There would have been true and lasting joy in this young man's heart. For that's what Jesus came to bring. And to give to all who follow Him. But that's where our next heading comes from in verse 22. A sorrow. Look at verse 22. But at these words He was saddened. He went away grieving. He forfeited all. He kept hold of his earthly treasure and he went away grieving. You know what? This is a sad reality for this rich young man. This is the only time in any of the Gospels where Jesus says to someone, follow me, and the person doesn't. Such was his love for esteem and comfort and ease and wealth. Such was his treasure Jesus offered to replace his earthly treasure with a greater treasure, eternal life. But he chose to hold on to what he will lose in the end. And he chose to forfeit that which he would have never lost, eternal life. This is a miserable reality for this young man. And it is a miserable reality for any of you in this room who do not follow Jesus Christ. Who sit there and just willfully don't do it. It's a miserable reality. Sorrow will be your lot wherever you go. Oh, you may enjoy a season of sunshine, but eventually the rain will come. The, the muddy ground will surface and in due time, your foot will slip. And because you held on so tightly to your treasure, your grip will fail and you will fall. And you will not fall into a bed of roses. You will fall into an eternity of hell fire forever. And a conscious torment 
for eternity. I beg you, learn from the sorrow of this man. I beg you. Allow the folly of this man to drive you to wisdom. Jesus is calling you this day, in this moment, to lay aside the treasure that you are holding on to and exchange it for the greater treasure He offers you. You would be a fool to continue to hold on to that which you'll never keep. As Jim Elliot said. And to forfeit that which you would have never lost. Eternal life. Learn from the sorrow of this man. And come to Jesus and find everlasting joy. His grace triumphs over every sin. Come to Him today by faith. You see, this young man wanted God. He was sincere. But he wasn't willing to abandon the treasure in his heart. He wanted life abundant now. But he didn't want to lose his abundant life. And it was his loss. It was his sorrow. Jesus says, does he not, explains in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. My peace I give unto you. Jesus gives us his joy that our joy may be made full. We've seen a sincerity. We've seen a summons. We just saw a sorrow. And now I want us to very quickly look at fourth and final heading this morning, a schooling. In verses 23 to 31. Because here it's back to school for the twelve. Jesus now in response to the departure of the young man. The young man's gone. And in response to that departure of this wealthy young man. It just left Jesus with the twelve. Because this young man had left Jesus. And to leave Jesus is to forsake the peace and joy and everlasting life that He alone gives. That's what it means to leave Jesus. And with Him gone, Jesus now enters into some very serious and very direct discussion. Verse 23, look, He looks around intently. There's an intensity to this. He said to His disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. After this warning, look at the response from the twelve. The disciples were amazed at his words, astonished at his words. We've seen this over and over and over again in Mark. Sure, Mark is the immediately gospel because immediately is used some 41 times, but Mark could also be known as the astonishment gospel. For the twelve are astonished at Jesus so often throughout the gospel And here we now get a double barrel version of astonishment. First, in verse 24, they were amazed at his words. The reason they were shocked was because in Judaism, 
to be wealthy was a sure sign of God's favor. And to be wealthy was to be certainly in line for entrance to the kingdom of God. God was favorable upon you because you were wealthy. And certainly as a result of that favor, you are then in line to enter into the kingdom of God. That was the thinking of Judaism. And so, so foreign was the concept that it is hard for the rich to enter was absolutely shocking to the twelve. It astonished them. But look at the rest of verse 24. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. General term now. No longer was Jesus referring specifically to the difficulty of the rich, like the rich young ruler. Jesus now makes a statement that says for anyone, in any place, at any time, of any age, of any nationality, of any socioeconomic standing, it is very hard to enter into eternal life. Look at verse 26. They were even more astonished. The phrase there means that this concept of difficulty for anyone to enter into eternal life in the kingdom absolutely knocked them out cold. Put them in a state of utter bafflement. This is an incredibly intense phrase there. They were even more astonished. Bewildered, as one commentator put it. Shocked beyond all measure, wrote another commentator. And as a result of that, they then exclaim, Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? The point that Jesus is trying to make here is that it's impossible. It's impossible. Salvation is impossible that's the point it's impossible verse 25 how can you get a camel the biggest animal in Perea where they are through the tiniest hole imaginable the eye of a needle dear church family now is where the main thrust of this portion and passage of scripture begins to unfold for us right now. This is why I entitled the message, The Impossible is Possible. In the Twelve's mind, and the pervading thought of the day, if a rich man can't get into heaven, and if it's so very hard for anyone to get into heaven, then who can? They are asking the question. Remember, they are in a complete and utter bewildered state. And in verse 27, Jesus answers, With people, it's impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now, if you took that one verse out and put it up on your fridge, you could say all sorts of things about that. But the context here is talking about salvation. Salvation for man is impossible. Jesus is driving home the point. Salvation is not something that man initiates. <laughs> it's something that God initiates. 
Man doesn't do a single thing to bring about salvation is what Jesus is teaching here. God does something wonderful to bring about salvation. Let that sink in. Let that crush you to the ground. Let that drive you low and to praise and to worship the God of all glory and man is nothing. Let that truth truth drive man and all his ego and all his pride and drive him down low into the dust where he might turn up and see nothing but the sovereign grace of God in salvation. With people, it is impossible. It is. He's talking about salvation. With, with man, salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. All things refers to all things necessary for salvation. Context is king. Man cannot save himself nor bring a thing to the table, but God can. God brings forgiveness. God brings righteousness. Both of which are impossibilities for man to bring to his own sin-sick state. Man can't change his own heart. That's impossible. But God can. Continuing on... (laughs) Peter now chimes in, speaking for the twelve as always, speaking well ahead of his brain and thoughts. He chimes right in, look at verse 28. Behold, we've left everything and followed you. Peter's saying with emphasis there, we, we are so different to that rich young ruler. He wouldn't forsake a thing, but we forsook everything, Jesus. Matthew's account tells us Peter added another question here. He said, what then will there be for us? From Peter's words, and we know that the twelve still have their minds on earth and are not yet gripped by eternity. Oh, they will be. But they are not yet gripped by eternity. Earth is still in their minds. And then in verses 29 to 31... The schooling continues. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter here like he always usually does. Instead, Jesus says that the reward for severing from the things of the world and fleeing to Jesus Christ and following Him will be rewarded you both in this life and in the life to come. You see, in this life, when you sever from bad company, you're then flooded with Christian company. That's your reward. When you forsake loved ones like earthly family who reject Jesus and reject you for following Jesus in this life, you're flooded with a church family who follow Christ. That's your reward. 
The necessary forsaking brings about a flood of reward in this life. The reward in this life, Mark alone adds, is persecution. Philippians 1.29, never forget it. It was granted to you and I to believe, belief's a gift, and to suffer. That's a gift as well. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Those are the rewards in this life. A church family who follow Christ. Brothers and sisters in the Lord. The reward for the life to come. Jesus says, eternal life. And then in verse 31, many who are first will be last and the last first. That's another mention of that whole first and the last idea to again show that we will all arrive together. Well, I want to point out a couple of things as we close. Number one, I want you to understand that true faith is following faith. What do I mean by that? You simply cannot say, and may the words never come out of your mouth. You simply cannot say, I am a Christian, if you're not following Jesus. Now we will follow and falter and stumble and trip and sin and seek forgiveness for that sin. And because we are children of God, we'll be forgiven that sin. But we will be following Jesus. You can never say, I'm a Christian, but not be following Jesus. And to follow Jesus is to obey Jesus. Jesus made it abundantly clear here. Salvation for man is impossible. God must act in your heart. And God will act in your heart when you, by grace, humble yourself and acknowledge your desperate need for Him. Do that today. Saving faith is following faith. It is marked by active following, not willful sidelining of Jesus Christ in your life. Saying, I'm not interested in that. That's the first one. Number two, look back up at verse 21 for a moment. Looking at him, it says, Jesus felt a love for him. Wow. God has a very special love for his children, but God loves the world. God loves all those made in His image. All people in all places, God has a love for them. He has a very specific and special love for His children. I think we can take comfort from this, those of us that have unbelieving children, those of us that have unbelieving parents and family members. We can have hope that what at times appears to be absolutely impossible, that what's going on in that person's life, Praise the Lord, it's not possible with them, but God. 
So we pray to God that He might save them. Jesus has a love for sinners. And if you're here this morning, I want you to know that if you know you stand outside of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, He has a love for you. His compassion extends beyond His people. His love extends beyond His people. His care. The very reason you just breathed, the very reason you rose yesterday and today is because of His love for you. Respond to His love. Number three. What a reminder this is that works-based religion actually distances people from God. I discovered this during the week. Heard about this during the week. God, it was great to have that pointed out. Man, works-based religion, we often think, people often think, Christians not so much, but people often think, wow, religious man, he must be close to God. Works-based religion actually distances people from God. Outside of Jesus Christ, every other religion is close to Satan, not God. Their works-based salvation is all the same and they keep people far from God. And this is an example of that this morning. Number four, just very quickly, what danger there is in a love of money you can have no money and love money you can have a lot of money and not love money but what danger there is in the love of money and and lastly look back up at verse 19 for a moment that list that jesus piles out You know there's one in there that's not from the Ten Commandments? Do not defraud. Choose in Malachi chapter 3. In the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Same word there is used in Malachi 3. Do not oppress. And so I really believe here that Jesus is using that one specifically to talk specifically to this rich young ruler who no doubt had every propensity to oppress. What I want you to understand from that is that God knows your sin. He knows the secret sin in your life. I'm talking primarily to those who sit here unconverted because that's who he was talking to. Jesus knows the very depths of your heart. And he calls you, come this day. Would you come? We've seen a lot in this narrative and I've kept you long enough. What a joy and privilege it is to be known by the Lord Jesus Christ. With him, salvation is possible. You can do nothing to save yourself. But humble yourself by His grace, and come and follow Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of the Word of God, Your Word. Lord, we sat under You and Your Word for us this day. Lord, there is not a maverick molecule in the universe. Every soul 
that is sitting in here this morning heard your word. For those of us that are born again, born from above, we say thank you. And for those here that sit here unconverted, like the rich young ruler, Lord, would you please do a mighty work in their life? And would they, because the responsibility is all theirs while sovereignty is all yours, would they put their faith in Jesus Christ this moment, in this day? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.